Thank you. I feel your support so much. So many people have been praying for me this week. And yeah, Jordan asked me to, to uh, speak. And I was like, are you asking me or are you telling me? And you know how Jordan is. He just gives you the look. I'm like, okay. He said, let me know by tomorrow. Okay, great. I will pray on it. So yes, we're going to do this. So uh, we're going to get into this uh, book of John today. And I'm going to jump right in because, is this better? Can you guys hear me well? Okay, we are gonna, I'm going to jump right in because I have a lot to cover. If you know me, I try to get two hours of content in 30 minutes. So let's do this. All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 11 today. This is the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And I'm not going to talk about the resurrection. We're just going to focus on death, okay? Doesn't that feel uplifting? All right, well, before we open the Bible to our passage, we'll have it on the screen. But I want to set some context for you so we kind of have a little bit of an understanding of where we're headed. Um, What I want to show you is kind of like a structure of the book of John. So uh, we'll put that up on the slide. John is typically broken up into two halves. The first half of the book, the scholars uh, refer to as the book of signs. This is chapters 1 to 12. Now, this is focused on the life of Jesus and the miracles he performed. And if you're familiar with the book of John, John likes to call miracles of Jesus signs. These are signs of his divinity, signs that this is the one God come in the flesh that they have been waiting for. Okay, and John is documenting seven signs of Jesus in his gospel. The second half of the gospel of John, often nicknamed by scholars, is the book of glory. And this is chapters 13 to 21. This is where John is going to focus in on the Passion Week of Jesus. This is where he's going to uh, talk about the events leading up to his death, from the Last Supper, his trial, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. And for our story today in chapter 11, the death and resurrection of Lazarus, what you want to think of that as is a bridge. It's going to actually bridge us from the life of Jesus into the death of Jesus. And why is that important? Well, because as we study the story together, we're going to see that the death and resurrection of Lazarus actually is a preview to what's about to happen. And this is where we're going to see in this book of glory, we see where Jesus is going to defeat ultimately the power of death and the power of the grave. Not just for one, Lazarus. No, no, no. He's going to defeat the power of death for everybody from that moment forward who choose to follow him. So should we jump in? You see, I'm not wasting any time. We're just going to get right in. Lord, we just uh, invite your presence today. It, It doesn't matter what I say if you're not here with us. So God, we, we need you. I need you. God, I pray that you would anoint this message. I pray that you would meet every single person that showed up today in a personal way. I pray that we would leave differently than when we came because you encountered us. So come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's jump in. So you can open your Bibles or you can read on the screen. I love seeing a hard copy Bible. This is like legit spiritual. Yes. All right, so I'm going to read the entire passage. We're going to be in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. And then I'm going to break it down into three separate sections, and we're going to unpack it, okay? John 11, 1 to 16. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So let's start in the first section, uh, verses 1 through 6. So we'll have that on the screen for you. What we have here is we have... Jesus receiving word from two sisters, two women, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is sick. And these two women are very close friends of Jesus. They know Jesus well. In fact, they often host him in their home when he's traveling through town. Now, details aren't shared with us about what it's like when he visits them and stops by to stay with them, but we know that they're intimate friends. We can imagine that Mary and Martha and Lazarus have heard deep things on Jesus's heart. They've seen Jesus heal people. Jesus heals people wherever he goes, right? So we can imagine that Mary and Martha are women who not only have seen firsthand miracles of Jesus, but they intimately know his personality, right? They intimately know his power. And so here we have a moment when Mary and Martha, after seeing all the miracles of Jesus, they're now in need. Their brother is sick. So they send Jesus this message, and the message simply says, Lord, The one you love is sick. Now notice they don't really make any explicit requests. They don't give him any instructions or directly ask him for anything. They just say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now what's special about this is that they knew that a direct ask, a specific request, it was unnecessary. They knew that a simple statement that they were in need would bring him to them. Now, there's an implication here, let's be honest, right? There, there is a hidden message here, right? We need you. Come, Lord, we need you. We've seen you do miracles, right? What I love about this message is it's actually saturated in faith. This isn't a question of, Jesus, do you think you might be able to heal Lazarus? No, it's, please, come and heal our brother. So, The title here, The One You Love, is a special description, and we know Jesus loved this family. We know it because in verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This phrase is only used one other time in the Gospel of John, and that's when he describes himself, the beloved John. So Jesus' response to this message is pretty unexpected. Let's look at verse 6. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed for two more days. Well, wait a second. In verse 5, we're told that Jesus loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus because in my thinking, you know, if you love this family, if you care about this family, you need to go now. Lazarus is sick. In fact, he's on his deathbed, right? He's suffering. This is urgent, but no, Jesus waits two more days. 
And what happens in the time that Jesus waits? Well, Lazarus actually dies. That's what happens. But I thought Jesus said that this sickness won't end in death, but he dies. So the text really gives us a dilemma is what happens here, right? So the question that comes up in our hearts, the question that comes up in Mary and Martha's hearts, and in fact, shortly later in the the next chapter, we're going to see Martha and Mary ask Jesus and say to him, if you had come, our brother wouldn't have died. So what they're asking, in other words, is what we're all asking is, why? why? Why did you wait? So this is a contradiction, right? So how do we resolve it? Well, we can find the answer in verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Well, this is a real contrast, right? We have sickness and death, and we have God's glory. So how do these two fit together? Because death right now, in this circumstance, Lazarus has died. It doesn't sound very much like glory, does it? Well, what we can know here and how this contradiction gets resolved is Jesus knows the beginning from the end. Jesus approaches this sickness completely different from anyone else. Why? Because he knows the end of the story. He knows that death will not have the final word. Death will not be the end of the story for Lazarus. Jesus knows that Lazarus will walk out of that grave. Mary doesn't know this. Martha doesn't know this. The disciples don't know this. But because of Jesus' perspective, because he knows the end from the beginning, the text is able to say both that Jesus loved Lazarus and he waited two more days. Later on in chapter 11, Jesus is going to tie it together and he's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will actually never die. So in other words, in Jesus, we will never die. We will live into eternity. One second. I have to use kids' toys to hold up my binder. Okay. So I don't know about you, but when I'm waiting on God, when I've experienced pain, loss, and I've had my fair share of loss, If there's an unmet desire that is so deep, even a good desire, and it's not happening, and then I go to my friend Jesus, just like Mary and Martha did, right? And I say, Lord, the one you love, the one you love needs you. And maybe maybe we don't get a response when we're in that position. Maybe we don't get anything right away. Maybe there's even silence. In our humanness, even though God loves me, I'm just not seeing the circumstances. I know he loves me, but what it looks like is, Jesus, you're not doing anything. You're not coming. And the lie that's so tempting for us to believe is you don't care. You don't care. But the thing about Jesus and the thing about God in his knowledge and in his power is that he actually proceeds with his own sense of timing. And the urgency felt by others is not necessarily the same urgency that God has in his divine timing when he works. So the first application is when God delays, it is for his glory and an opportunity for us to trust in his goodness. It doesn't mean he loves us any less. We probably just don't have the full story of what he's doing. All right. How are you guys doing? Okay, good. Let's go to the next section. 
uh, verses 7 through 10. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, but if, for they see by this world's light. But if a person walks at night, they, they stumble, for they have no light. All right, so here we have Jesus telling the disciples, it's time to go back to help our friend Lazarus. And look how the disciples respond. What, respond, what do they say? They say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? All right, well, I want to kind of give you some context here. So here's a map. This is a map of Bethany and Jerusalem uh, compared to Jerusalem. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in a village outside of Jerusalem in a little village of Bethany, uh, a little over a mile away. In fact, it was about a mile and a half away, so it was very close. So what the disciples saying here is true. Jesus, last time he was in Jerusalem, it was only a few months ago, he was at a festival teaching at the temple, and a crowd tried to stone him in the outer courts. So he and his disciples left Jerusalem, and they haven't been back since. So his disciples are actually correct when they hesitate, because they know if they go back to Jerusalem, in their eyes, Jesus will be in trouble. His life will be in danger, actually. And so to go to Jerusalem at this time seemed to the disciples the surest way to commit suicide. But back in verse 4, remember we read, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So let's talk about this for a minute. When God, uh, what is this God's glory and glorification of God's Son? Well, Jesus is obviously going to get God's glory through the miracle of resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. In fact, this is going to be his greatest miracle yet. People will see the glory of God in action, right, as Lazarus walks out of that tomb. It will be undeniable. Can you imagine if you raise somebody from the dead? I mean, I think God would get some glory because guess what? I can't do that on my own, right? God has to do it. So he will get glory. But here's the thing that the disciples didn't know. This is the thing that Mary and Martha didn't know is that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the supreme glorification that is going to come and what Jesus is actually referring to in verse 4 is that as a result of this miracle, when he goes back to Bethany, it will be his last time. It's his last time because Jesus knew perfectly well that to go to Bethany and to cure Lazarus was to take the step that would end in his own death on the cross, which indeed it did. He knew the cost of helping his friend and he was well prepared to pay it. Not only for his friend, Lazarus was going to receive life, but as we said earlier, everybody after who believed in him. In the previous chapter, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And this is the highest kind of devotion, to lay one's, down, one's life down for someone else. And that's what Jesus did. I loved the worship today because it was exactly what this is talking about, is Jesus laid his life down for people, for us. Now, I want to zoom in a little bit on verse 9 and 10 because there's a contrast here, right? When the uh, disciples voiced their concern. Jesus answered them in, a, in an interesting way. Uh, verse 9 says, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. 
It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Now, I don't know about you, but this feels like an odd answer. The disciples are like, Jesus, you're going to be in danger if you go to Jerusalem. He's like, well, there's 12 hours in the day. You're like, I don't understand. I don't get it. He gives this like mini parable that leaves the disciples and us scratching our head. Like, what is he talking about? Right? Well, right. This is a contrast. Light and day versus darkness and night. So pretty obviously on the surface, we can interpret this. If they're going to go from village to village, they have to do it in the daytime. There's no street lamps there. There's no sidewalks. Like, I don't know about you, but when I walk my dog, I'm like, there's no sidewalk. Like, how can I walk here? Like, we're so spoiled, right? Like, they had none of that, right? They're walking through the wilderness, right? In fact, this week I was hiking with a friend and, oh, it was gnarly. It was a bamboo forest and it had these roots sticking out of the side of a kind of a hill. I mean, literally we were stepping like this and it was getting dark. And I was like, if we get stuck here, we're not leaving. We're going to basically just chit-chat for like 12 hours together. It was so dark, and it wasn't even dark yet. It was just the cover of the trees, right? So what is Jesus really saying here about this daylight? Yeah, on the surface it is. You need to walk in the daylight, right, through dangerous ground. But there's a deeper meaning, as typical with Jesus. Three chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Uh, the light of life. And earlier in the book of John, in chapter 1, John describes Jesus as the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. So light is used as a metaphor time and time again describing Jesus. And so when Jesus answers the disciples, what we have here is actually Jesus referring to himself as the light, guiding people through darkness into victory. He's saying, I am about to go bring light or illumination to the world. I am about to go overcome the darkness with myself. And so to follow Jesus is to walk in the light practically. What does that mean? That's such a metaphor. What does that actually mean? Well, it's illumination of truth. It's a revelation. You may want to say it's an epiphany, right? Some people like to say enlightenment. Well, in fact, it is enlightenment to the truth and to the right way. Jesus' light always leads us into what's best for us, that he always leads us into freedom and victory. Now, when we walk alone, we're bound to stumble and grope our way through the darkness. And there's so many of life's problems that we don't have a solution for. I don't know what to do so many times with the problems that life puts in front of me, and we know there's real problems in life. Would anyone agree? There's real issues that we don't know what to do with that feel impossible. But Jesus, because of what he did, we receive the Holy Spirit, which gives us understanding, which gives us strategy, which gives us guidance to live in victory. I remember one time I was going to work, and as I was walking up the steps to my office building, just out of the blue, the Lord just, boom, he spoke to me. He said, my people don't have victory because they don't ask for my strategy. And I was like, that sounded so profound. and I have no idea what to do with it. So, of course, I had to pray into that. Like, what does this mean? And he was telling me, ask for my strategy. I'll show you. I'll tell you what to do. And I cannot tell you how many times I have asked God for strategy, even to the point that he has given me specific words to say in a hard conversation. Like, he will answer that prayer. 
I heard a quote that shows an obvious comparison between darkness and light. And that's our next application. Satan in this world offers us what at first looks like freedom, but it's actually bondage. Jesus offers us what at first looks like bondage, but it's actually freedom. Some of us have ideas about what Jesus is or what he requires of us or God, what he requires of us or what he's like. But what he actually desires for us is to be fully free from bondage and darkness, to be fully who we were meant to be. And when we say no to God in any area, we start out feeling like we are doing this exercise of independence But what we quickly discover is that we have now actually begun to lose our power to choose. And we become enslaved by our own bad choices. A clear example of being enslaved is addiction, right? Any type of addiction, chemical addiction, pornography, shopping, food, addiction to relationships. Uh, Wayne Morihoshi, I don't know if you know him, he does the slides a lot. He's uh, just such a precious friend. He and I started doing homeless outreach in Waikiki during COVID, during the lockdown, God spoke to us. And I, when God told me, I was like, I'm sure you did not mean to tell me that. And he was like, no, I am telling you that. I was like, no, but not me, somebody else. (laughs) And he was very clear. It It was time to go do that. And we've been so blessed, honestly, to be the hands and feet of Jesus there. And people who come, they're precious. They, they come, and, and most of the time, they have joy. They're happy to see us. We can pray for them. We can talk with them. But every now and then, one of them will show up, and they are completely high. They are completely drunk and have no concept of what's going on. We've seen some really horrible things when people show up like that. Just a, a total loss of dignity, a total dehumanization And chemical addiction is terribly painful, obvious manifestation of what happens when we walk in the darkness. Just one one thing. Even an alcoholic knows that that drink, it's going to ruin everything, but they can't stop themselves from putting it up to their lips, right? It's a total loss of dignity. And what happens is, is our will becomes enslaved. We have no more power to choose the more we walk in darkness. Now, that's an extreme example obviously, right? What Jesus actually did for us is he gave us our freedom back. He, he rescues us from our bad choices, from the influence of this world, and we, we can't get ourselves out of the mess. We, we can't. Well, I had an addiction. It wasn't a chemical addiction. I wasn't addicted to drugs or alcohol. I was addicted to relationships. I had severe codependency. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know what codependency was. I didn't know who I was, and I I literally hated people. Yet, I needed their approval, so I was in constant internal conflict. I would never speak the truth to somebody, because if I spoke the truth to somebody, that meant that they might not approve of me. And I would cling to anyone who accepted me. If you accepted me, I was going to be your new best friend, and you wouldn't get rid of me, even though secretly inside I actually despised you. It was really messed up. And on top of all that need, I was completely self-centered, and I didn't care about doing anything for anyone else if there wasn't in it a benefit for me. 
I didn't even know what a mess I was. And God, when I came to him in his kindness and in his grace, he actually started revealing to me what a mess I was. And what I did in response wasn't run to the Lord. What I did in response is I actually started hating myself. I started despising myself. I was disgusted with myself because I was so needy and I was so broken. And the cross of Christ and his Holy Spirit, I'm here today, not codependent, knowing who I am, humble and so happy to serve others. In fact, honored to serve others because of what he did for me. So why do we call the gospel the good news? Well, here's a clue from William Barclay. The final proof of Christianity is the sight of what Jesus can do. Words may fail to convince, but there's no argument against God in action. It's the simple fact that the power of Jesus Christ has made cowards into heroes, doubters into men and women of certainty, selfish people into servants of all. Above all, it's the plain fact of history again and again that the power of Christ has made bad people good. And that is 100% my story. God made this really bad person decent. So this is the good news. This is why we come on Sunday morning to celebrate. Because he changes us. He transforms us. He relieves us from the bondage. He relieves us from self. There's only one caveat. There's only one requirement to receiving this. We have to say yes. Because God will always honor our power of choice. So the gift that he offers is the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to overcome the darkness. It gives us the light for our path. And it gives us everything we need to overcome that life throws at us. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. All right, let's go to our last section, 11 through 16. So after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. All right. Here what we see is Jesus is saying it's time to go. And he uses a metaphor to describe Lazarus' death. In verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, the disciples, they miss it. They don't get it, right? This is actually a beautiful metaphor that later Paul is going to pick up in his letters. And he's going to use this same metaphor to talk about fellow believers who have died. He's going to say they have fallen asleep. And the reason Jesus uses this and later Paul is because the word death, it doesn't apply. It's not appropriate. It's not an appropriate term to describe someone who has passed from life on earth because they aren't dead. No, they will continue to live. That's why they say they've fallen asleep. But I want to look closer at verse 16. I've read the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus many times, and I have missed this verse every time. Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Here's how one scholar describes this. At that moment, the disciples well might have refused to follow Jesus, knowing that he was going into danger. 
Then one lonely voice spoke up from the group, the voice of Thomas. And he said, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas here isn't talking about dying with Lazarus. He's talking about dying with Jesus. In Thomas's mind, Jesus, when he goes to Lazarus, his enemies will arrest him and put him to death. And is Thomas correct? He is. Thomas is such an unlikely character. If you know anything about Thomas, if you've heard anything about Thomas, you know he's famous for doubting Jesus. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus does go to the cross. He dies, he comes back, and he is resurrected in physical form. And Thomas says, until I lay eyes on Jesus, I won't believe he's alive. Now, however you interpret what he's saying, regardless of what we think, to this day, he has the reputation and the nickname Doubting Thomas because of that, right? But here in this passage, Thomas is the underdog. This was a huge show of courage and faith on his part. He's the one to speak up and say that he will go to the end with Jesus, even to death if that's what it takes. And Thomas maybe didn't fully know what he was saying, but what he did know is he was saying to Jesus, I'm not quitting on you. And so Thomas here is displaying the highest kind of courage, the kind of courage that doesn't mean not being afraid. Real courage is being perfectly aware of the worst that can happen, possibly being sickeningly afraid of it, and yet doing the right thing anyway. We never need to be ashamed of being afraid. But we might be ashamed of allowing our fear to stop us from doing what is right. And so the application here is, it takes courage to say yes to following Jesus, and we need it. And the reason it takes courage is because we don't really know where he might lead us, do we? It's an unknown. It's, it's a real walk of faith and trust. Well, what we can know is that because he is the light, he will lead us into victory because that's where he went. What we can also know that following Jesus is that he will lead us to the cross because that is where he went. And so we have to have courage to choose God's glory. So I'm going to start winding us up here, and I want to ask the question, what do you need courage for today? Do you need courage to pray for a non-believer in your world? I don't know how to say, I don't know what the words are. I don't want to be one of those Bible thumpers, right? Do you need courage to do what we call here at Blue Water Try, right? We say at Blue Water, faith is spelled T-R-Y. Do you see somebody at the store that has a broken leg and you want to pray for them for healing and you need courage to do that? Maybe you are like how I was. You, you are scared of people and you, you don't want to confront bad behavior. You don't want to actually say truth. And maybe you're being passive. Maybe you need courage to confront something in love. Right now, Jordan has been talking about the world, and we have to stand for Christ in the world right now that's denying him. We all need courage for that. Maybe you're here today, and you actually have never given your life to Christ, and you need courage for that, to give him everything, to say, you know what? I am giving you my life. And maybe you need deliverance from bondage, like I did. 
Um, I have a belief that even though we have come to Christ and giving him our life, that we can rededicate any time. When people ask me when I gave my life to Christ, I say, which time? Because so many times God has brought me to a crossroads where I had to choose, is it going to be my way or is it going to be your way? And he said, will you give me your life yet again? Right? So if you're a believer already and you follow him, you can totally give him whatever you need to today. So if there's a place you're walking in darkness or bondage or there's a place that you're feeling afraid and you need courage, today is the day that you can say it. So I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit, actually, and he's going to do his work here. Um, So Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come right now. We ask you to come and meet us. Lord, we ask you to give us courage. We ask you to set us free. Come, Holy Spirit. We're just going to wait on him for a minute or two. Thank you for your word today, God. Continue to remind us that you are here.